Hello, welcome to Refreezing the Arctic. My name's Hayden Prowse. Today I'm joined by Cambridge University's Dr. Hugh Hunt. The idea of unabated climate change, well, that's going to be terrible. So maybe climate change with geoengineering will be less terrible. Dr. Hunt joins me here at Shoreditch House to discuss the bleak picture of global warming and the technologies scientists and engineers are working on to try to save us. Thanks very much for coming along this evening. It's great to talk to you about this perhaps rather depressing topic about uh, refreezing the Arctic. The questions that I might ask as an engineer is not whether climate change is happening or not, because I think we perhaps all agree that it is happening, but what are we going to do about it? And the Arctic is perhaps one of the biggest problems facing us. The first thing I want to do is to present a little bit of evidence. As an engineer, I use evidence to decide whether something needs to be done or not. You don't need to repair the wings on a plane if the wings aren't going to fall off. But the flip side is that if perhaps there is a 5% chance that the wings might fall off the plane, well, maybe it's a good idea not to fly in that plane. What percentage chance would you accept for the wings falling off a plane? 1%? 0.1%? What about climate change? What risk are we prepared to accept? So let's have a look at this carbon dioxide graph. Carbon dioxide is a key thing to do with climate change. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is like the blanket that keeps the Earth warm. And here is a graph called a Keeling curve for the last a million years, let's call it, of CO2 concentrations in parts per million, ppm. And the carbon dioxide goes up and down and up and down, up and down. The down bits are the ice ages. That's where the uh, CO2 level, the blanket is thin. And the up bits are the warm periods. But where are we now? We're way, way up at 400 parts per million. It's not normal, and it's not likely that we are going to live comfortably for very long with such a high concentration of carbon dioxide. Now let's have a look at how temperature has changed in the last, say, 130 years. So this graph goes back to 1880, and it shows what's called the temperature anomaly and this word anomaly just means the difference from some reference level. The reference level you'll see is 1880 to 1899 average, and that's what we'll call zero. And you'll see that it goes up and down, but there's generally a rise. And if you look now, in 2016, this graph is showing, we are at more than one degree warmer than so-called pre-industrial temperature. You'll also see this region marked the pause because people talking about climate change perhaps 10, 15 years ago were saying, look, climate change isn't happening. Uh, there's a point in 1996 or thereabouts which is quite high up. And after that, you'll see cooler, 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 cooler. Well, that's a blip. Cooler, another blip. Cooler, cooler, cooler. So there's maybe 15 years of 
cooler temperatures. Well, that's fine if you choose as your reference point one of the hottest years ever on record. Well, now we've got a new record, 2016, the hottest year ever in our time. Let's look at more globally what temperatures look like in these images. These are from NASA, and here we are in 2012 to 16. This picture just doesn't look right. Everything is warmer just about, particularly in the Arctic. Arctic ice, the summer sea ice, the ice that floats in the Arctic, has been melting, and each year a bit more of it melts. And you don't have to be a genius to see that there is a risk that we may have no ice floating in the Arctic in the summer pretty soon. And whether it's 2021 or whether it's 2025, the consequences are going to be pretty dire. Let's see what those consequences might be. The Greenland ice shelf holds, well, 2 million cubic kilometres of ice. It turns out that if that Greenland ice melts, that'll lead to a 7 metre sea level rise. And what's a 7 metre sea level rise? Well, the Houses of Parliament are somewhere around 6 metres above sea level. Melbourne, where I grew up, is a few metres above sea level. The whole of the planet will be affected very badly by a 7 metre sea level rise. In Hay, at the Hay Festival, I talked about um, sea level rise and people there are shrugging their shoulders saying, well, we're up at 90 metres, um, why should that matter? Well, OK, your own house might be uh, safe, but all of the roads that the trucks and things have to use to supply the supermarkets are going to be underwater. Uh, all of the ports that are going to su supply the goods that you need imported from other countries are going to be underwater. Maybe we're going to have to think about being self-sufficient, growing our own food, uh, looking after ourselves. Are we ready for that? It, it's not something we've really started thinking about. Let's just look at the numbers. We can say pretty accurately that 35 billion tonnes a year of CO2 is being emitted globally. World population is 7 billion. 35 billion divided by 7 billion gives me five tonnes of CO2 per person per year. Now that's a global average. The UK average is more like 10 tonnes per person per year. So where are you producing the CO2? For me, it's flying. I go to Australia perhaps once a year to visit family. Well, I reckon it's about five tonnes of CO2 in one flight. When do we ever talk about that CO2? We don't. And we're not encouraged to. The airlines don't tell us about it. The oil companies don't tell us about it. The governments don't tell us about it. No one tells us because it gets in the way of our lifestyle. We, we love to fly. Now, there's talk about net zero emissions by 2055. Well, forget that flying. Forget that heating of your homes. Forget that lovely new computer. So unless we're prepared to take individual responsibility for our CO2 emissions, it's unlikely that we're going to meet this net zero anytime soon. And that's where geoengineering comes in, active control of the climate. The Paris Agreement talks about meeting really tough targets for limiting 
global warming, and without actually writing it down, implicit is geoengineering. Implicit, in fact, is this thing called BECCS, B-E-C-C-S, Biomass Energy with Carbon Capture and Storage. It's a technique which is used to reduce CO2 levels in the atmosphere. But BECCS, Biomass Energy, requires that we grow lots of trees and that instead of burning oil, coal and gas in our power station, we burn trees. And then we burn the trees in pure oxygen, capture the CO2 from the chimney, and then we put the CO2 deep down in the ground, and it has to stay there for thousands of years. Well, this technology exists, but it's not ready to go at a scale of 35 billion tonnes of CO2 per year. It's not, it isn't a technology which we can say, ah, good, problem solved. So let's think what else geoengineering can do for us. Carbon dioxide removal is another geoengineering proposal. Carbon dioxide removal techniques include um, ocean fertilisation, where we chuck stuff into the oceans to encourage growth of uh, plant life in the oceans, plankton, seaweed, and then that plant life dies and sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and, um, well, that's great. But it's going to take a long time to get carbon dioxide removal going at a sufficient scale. But in the meantime, people are talking about solar radiation management, that's SRM. Solar radiation management is about reflecting sunlight to cool the planet. The sun currently delivers about over a kilowatt of heat to the earth per square metre. Now, a lot of that's already reflected from clouds and from just generally the atmosphere reflects quite a lot of that heat. What if we could increase the reflectivity by just one or two percent? Can we increase the reflectivity of the oceans? by making them a little bit foamier. You know, when the waves break, you produce this white foam. Can we make a bit more of that? Or could we uh, increase reflectivity of clouds, making them whiter? Or could we uh, increase reflectivity of the land, make deserts a bit more reflective by putting shiny granules in the sand or paint roofs of houses white? But the most talked about technique for solar radiation management is increased reflectivity from aerosols pumped into the atmosphere, high, high up into the atmosphere, up in the stratosphere. And the idea is to increase the reflectivity of the Earth by changing the composition of particles in the stratosphere. And that's where this SPICE project comes in. I was involved with this few years ago, SPICE stands for Stratospheric Particle Injection for Climate Engineering, and we were looking at various options for delivering stuff up to the stratosphere. Sulphur dioxide is one possibility. Perhaps then with uh, uh, aircraft, we could put 10 million tonnes of sulphur dioxide into the upper atmosphere, but then we might need thousands of flights a day just to do this. And that seems like madness. We were looking at the idea of having tethered balloons. So imagine a big balloon the size of 
Wembley Stadium, up at 20 kilometres, holding a big pipe, and that pipe would be pumping there at a rate of, say, 30 kilograms per second. It's a lot of stuff, but maybe 10 of these balloons worldwide, delivering 30 kilograms per second, would be enough to give us two-degree cooling. It sounds terrible. It sounds like some kind of Frankenstein madness that we would consider modifying the climate by doing this kind of thing. But if we don't, then what are the consequences of doing nothing? The problem is, when we do research, it's deemed to be controversial. Our SPICE project, there was an experiment that we wanted to do, which involved pumping just water, about a bathtub full of water, in Norfolk, in the middle of a dry summer, up to a height of one kilometre, just to illustrate some of the principles involved. It got cancelled. Why? Because there wasn't a governance framework in place. There weren't international uh, bodies agreeing on how geoengineering research should be conducted. There wasn't a proper understanding about how intellectual property should be handled. And if governments put research money into geoengineering, then the perception is that they're not interested in solving the problem of CO2 emissions. Well, OK, catch-22. We're not reducing CO2 emissions, so it's like having no research going into chemotherapy because, well, we don't want anyone to think that we're not concentrating on living healthier lives. Right, we're not allowed to do stratospheric aerosols, so we've got to do this air capture of CO2. 35 billion tonnes of CO2 per year, but CO2 is pretty dilute in the atmosphere at 400 parts per million. So it means we have to handle a cubic kilometre of air per second. Air has to be sucked in, CO2 has to be removed, and that CO2 has to be put underground. We're not going to do it. But what about other greenhouse gases? If we can't remove CO2, maybe it's worth looking at methane and nitrous oxide. Both of these gases are on the rise. And the key thing is that we can convert methane into CO2. You might think, well, that's a bit silly because CO2 is a greenhouse gas. But it's 20 to 80 times less potent, a greenhouse gas. And methane to CO2 is a gas-to-gas conversion, which means you don't have to sequester anything. You don't have to pump anything underground. You've converted your methane to something much less potent, and it doesn't have to be stored anywhere. So after the SPICE project, then, I've been involved in this thing called SUGAR. SUGAR stands for Solar Updraft Greenhouse Gas Removal. And what does this mean? Well, supposing we could build a solar updraft tower in the desert somewhere, places that are not being used for other things, and perhaps deserts that have been spoilt by nuclear testing, for instance. Well, let's use these areas to extract non-CO2 greenhouse gases. And the idea is that you'd have a large area of greenhouse and the air under the greenhouse gets hot. So let's now coat the surface of the glass under the greenhouse with some catalyst. And that catalyst, with some sunlight shining on it, will convert methane and nitrous oxide into other gases. And then in the middle of this greenhouse you have a chimney, a tall chimney. 
and the hot air goes up the chimney, just natural convection, hot air rises. And that's going to draw lots of air naturally through this greenhouse. Well, let's build them, let's do it. The total land area we'd need around the world perhaps is about 40% of the area of France. Sounds like a big area, but spread it around the world, it could be made to work. Well, look, I've explored lots of things about geoengineering and about climate change. And where does this leave us? Can we refreeze the Arctic? And I think we can. Should we do it? I think we should. Not everyone agrees with me. People think it's, uh, it's meddling with uh, the climate, playing God with the climate. So I don't think we will refreeze the Arctic. Uh, it will melt and we will get sea level rise and we will get methane release. Well, there we go. That's a little um, run around uh, my perspectives on geoengineering and climate change. Thanks for coming along. I would like to have ended on a more cheerful note, but that's just the nature of the subject. Thanks very much for your attention. I mean, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is, has there been... I mean, this struck me at Hay, actually, because... Hay, I don't know if anyone's been to Hay Festival, but it's basically all of the country's sort of middle class gathered together in a field to agree with each other for two weeks. Uh, middle class and middle-aged. Middle class and middle-aged. But um, it's kind of shocking that all of the kind of intellectual brain power that was there and they failed to sell their ideas to the rest of the country or the world. Why has science been so ineffective at selling the message? It's, very, it's a really interesting question. So it occasionally makes it into the newspapers. I think New Scientist this week is running a, a feature on geoengineering. But it's not about the science of geoengineering. It's all about the ethics, governance, public perception. And I just feel as if, OK, let's do the ethics, governance, public perception, but let's not use our fears of geoengineering mm. to stop research into geoengineering. And on the whole, I don't encounter people that have that attitude. But the media loves it. The media loves the idea that people out there don't trust the experts. Uh, so it is very easy to stay in your bubble and think that, you know, you don't come up against these people that are real sort of climate sceptics. But, uh, you know, I've met a lot of them. My uncle's a climate sceptic. And I feel like, are we underestimating the scale of the task at hand? Well, but so trying interesting. To I'm not trying to persuade anybody of anything. I'm just trying to tell the story. But you should um, be, right? Well, maybe. I think, I think it's a, there are plenty of people and, and they're passionate. But they've got this idea that the way to get everybody to, to believe that this is a real problem is to get out there and scream at the top of your voice and, and persuade people. You know, if we shout loud enough, we will persuade people. Just don't think that's going to work. And I, it, it might take a bit longer than it ought to take, but we ought to be able to have a conversation. Has anyone uh, got any uh, questions? I'm sure there's loads. Is it true that the algae that I think produces most of the oxygen on the planet, if the temperature raises by two degrees, the algae will die? So the oceans are very pivotal in the balance of CO2 in the atmosphere. What we know now is the oceans are becoming more acidic, and that's because the CO2 levels in the atmosphere are higher and the oceans are warming. The balance is being screwed up. Now, yes, people are forecasting that two degree temperature rise of the oceans will cause dramatic 
die off of the algae. Will it? Well, the thing is we don't have a crystal ball. My answer to that would be, gosh, that's worrying. We ought to try and avoid it. Do you, do you think there's an argument that geoengineering is a short-term fix, which plays into the hands of the oil companies because it allows them to keep pumping out CO2? I don't think people will buy that. Anybody who's willing to listen to the arguments about geoengineering, I don't think they will buy that. I think what it has to be is that in the time it takes for us to get our fossil fuel usage down to close to zero, we're going to need every technology we can get to help us. Um, it's going to be a portfolio. We're going to be using nuclear power. We're going to have lots of solar. We're going to have lots of tidal, lots of wind. We're going to be flying less. We're going to be reducing our energy consumption. And actually, the one thing that the oil companies will make money out of doing is they, what oil companies have got is expertise in high-pressure pumping, expertise in managing oil reserves, expertise in managing all sorts of shipping stuff around the world. I think oil companies are going to be the ones who are going to be doing carbon sequestration. If you've got like a, a really profound conclusion that you can give us? I gave a similar talk to this in uh, Cambridge. And the question was asked by somebody who said, so um, are you optimistic or pessimistic? How many beers did you have? I'd had a couple by then, but I, but I just said, look, I have to be optimistic. And then afterwards, I went to get a beer. She came up to me and said, look, um, are you really optimistic? And I hadn't really thought about it until then. So I, I just figured that the Romans, during the fall of the Roman Empire, well, they were probably pessimistic. The people in the Black Death were a bit pessimistic. The people in you know, 1916 was a pretty pessimistic time. The Great Depression, the Normandy landings, I can't imagine that was a very cheerful time. Um, but here we are, life's quite good. So you get these ups and downs. I can't help feeling that in some time in the not far distant future, life will be great. So the optimist in me says that, OK, the next couple of decades might be pretty tricky, but have another beer. There we go. Refreezing the Arctic was brought to you by Soho House and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Hayden Prowse, and featured Dr. Hugh Hunt from the Department of Engineering at Cambridge University.